Inconvenient. Adjective. Causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth. Noun. The quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. You don't have uh, the Bible in front of you, the text, for the most part, is in your order of worship. You're going to be flipping between that and the first book of Genesis. Um, or uh, if you don't own the Bible, there's about five or six on the back table. I'd love for you to grab one of those as our gift to you. Any way that you can have the text in front of you is going to be helpful. Okay? Now, last week, we began, as we've been continuing our series called Inconvenient Truths. In fact, the Bible speaks into our lives in ways we don't like. Uh, all of us, none of us, like them in every way. So, uh, last week we began this topic of gender, engagement, idea of gender. We struggle with this, right? You know, on this issue, we, we tend to end up in ditches because for the longest time we associate gender with certain functions, certain things that were done. And then we assign value to those things. So dudes do these kind of things, and they're really valuable, and women do these kind of things, and well, maybe not so much. And we responded against that, rightfully, we reacted against that, um, but in doing so, we didn't challenge whether or not these things were a product of function, instead we challenged the notion in general, which is gender, gender, there's no such thing, societal construct. It's a societal construct. If you, if you look at other cultures, they have different functions, so clearly, gender itself, it, it it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But here's the root of our cultural confusion, though. It's been brought to the fore so much in the last few weeks. On the one hand, we want to, as a society, say that gender is an idea, it's something we created, it's not real. While at the same time celebrating a dude who decides that he's essentially a woman. It's confusing. Which is it? Are there any distinctions or are there distinctions? Are there essentials or are there non-essentials? You know, this crazy thing about our culture's current obsession with the form of the Catholic on the cover of Vanity Fair, which, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, is so strangely appropriate uh, because of that. Like, if, the crazy thing about this is that while declaring there's no such thing, and no such thing as essential gender, we're at the same time affirming that someone needs to embody themselves in a certain way to express what they're feeling that makes them gender. So which is it? Which is it? That's why we've been talking about gender in the last couple of weeks. Because the Bible talks about it in great ways, beautiful ways, ways that go far beyond like that thing over there is bad. It actually presents an idea, uh, a picture for us of something beautiful that we want to embrace. And last week, we spoke specifically of men, that men image a particular aspect of God. 
God, not all of God, but a particular aspect that, that guys tell the world something about God that women don't. We don't tell the whole story. We only tell part of it. Men and women image God differently. We are compliments. We tell the world something about God that the other does not. That's why we need each other. And so this morning we ask, what is the story that women tell the world about God that men so for that, we're going to turn first and foremost to Psalm 62. So if we're going to place our hat of yours to stand in honor of God's word and thread before the turn. This is God's word, friends. It is all for us. He has expressed himself to us for our flourishing. So let's hear it in that way. My soul finds rest in God alone. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is in come him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust me in all times of people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is God's work giving so be my question. You pray for Father, over this time we ask your blessing. Holy Spirit, you alone communicate to us and speak to our hearts. No words of mine can penetrate our hearts, but they are left unchanged by you. So, Lord, I pray that you work in us and through us to give us a, a beautiful vision for how you created women. To give you glory and to show forth your greatness in ways that God has cannot. And Lord, I pray that uh, in, the midst, in the midst of this time, that you would communicate not just these truths, but your very gospel to us so that we might trust, believe, and rest in you. Let Jesus and his work come out. Let the one who speaks fall away. Lord, you will live the words of eternal life. So we ask all these things in Christ. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so speaking on the topic of what is generally called biblical femininity is dangerous. And it is and the primary danger is wrapped up in the fact that many of us here in this room are highly suspicious of anyone using the Bible to think on how quote-unquote things should be because what that generally amounts to is a precursor for some kind of oppression or, or power trip, right? That's just the way things are. That, those are. that is what we are bringing to the table. But I need us to kind of stick with it this morning and to stay as, as engaged as we can because Christians do believe that the scripture, the Bible, actually does speak to all of life, all of life, not just part of it, but all of it. And one of the things uh, that the scripture does, as a matter of fact, it's the primary thing, is it tells a story. It tells a story of who God is and who we are. And in the midst of that, it, is that it tells us that we tell the world something about God. Men and women do this equally, but differently. We equally tell something to the world about God, but we differently do it. We have different things that we tell. And this morning, we're going to look at three things that, that women image about God to the world, all of which dwell in the heading that women 
image the goodness of God to the world. If men are the ones, as I said last week, who, who in a sense image God's strength into the world, communicate his, his move into the world, to see chaos brought into order, women image God's goodness into the world. And so we're going to look at that in three ways. We're going to look at the image of beauty, the image of nurture, and the image of rest. And, and there's not one that's going to help with God's love instead. Okay? So let's begin with, the, with women as the image of beauty. If you can flip, if you've got your Bible, let's go over to Genesis 2 real quick. Because in Genesis 2, verses 19 to 23, we get a little more detailed account of the creation of humanity, in particular of woman. Okay? Now, it's important, to, well, not important. At this point, it's more of a curiosity. But maybe you need to know that when, uh, when God was created, the original name of woman was was woman. Uh, Adam, in, in Hebrew, just means man. Uh, Isha, which is the, the name that, that he has before uh, the fall, is, is just that. It's woman. It's Isha. So as God creates woman, uh, it's important for us to see how he does that. So, look down at verses 19 23. God forms man. We, we've already seen this. He forms man. He, he doesn't just speak man into existence. He literally gets his hands into the dirt forms him, sculpts him, breathes life into him, puts him into the garden, and then begins to bring animals to him. Okay? Let's pick up the end of verse 20. It says this, But for Adam, no suitable helper could be found, so the Lord would not cause a man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now stop there. So far, what we know is this. God created all these animals. He has created man. He brought all these animals to him. But the animals weren't persons. Sorry. Animals weren't persons. And so because of that, they couldn't provide the quote-unquote help that was needed. Now we're going to get into what that word help means. I guess as most of us are very confused on that. And then God makes woman from the man and brings her to him. Now, as an aside, notice this. Adam had already been given a job which was the name animals. The dude had a job before he had a woman. I'm just saying. Okay? Guys, he had a job before he had a woman. It's in the Bible. Alright, now, moving on. Look what happens. He, God brings this woman to Adam, and Adam sings. He says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, Old Testament scholars will tell you that this little phrase is Highly, highly uh, poetic, uh, probably a song that Adam sings. He, he sees this person, this woman, and says, Wow! Wow! It, it's not dissimilar to, to the psalmist in Psalm 27, who sings of the fact that all he wants to do, if he can just do one thing all his life, is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord all of his days. You know, Christians often talk about the fact that humanity is the crown of creation. But notice something in this text. Who was created last? It's not man. It's woman. If humanity is the crown of creation, women are the jewel. And Adam sees that and he responds with song. He's, he's drawn to her. There's something about her that invites him, that, that pulls him in. And so is it strange that immediately after this, we are told, literally, and for this reason, man's going to leave his mom and his daddy, and he's going to join his wife. Women uniquely tell the beauty of the Lord, that 
aspect of who he is that draws others to him. And when I say that, when I say the beauty of the Lord, I'm not saying physical, because God is is physical. And yet there's something about him that draws us, and women image that, that they tell of the beauty of the Lord, that aspect of who he is that draws others to him, that moves us to gaze upon him and delight in him. Beauty is not something that moves towards us. It is not something that comes to us. It is something that invites us. It invites us in. It stands to be gazed upon, to be delighted in. And women image this aspect of God to the world. Women were created to draw others in, to entice them to more. More relationship. More intimacy. More life. Never imposing. Always inviting. But the problem is, is that humanity sinned. This was how, this was how things were before sin entered the world. But now sin entered the world, and, and the image of God in us was twisted. And when it was twisted, that image of beauty changed to objectification. Look, sin never erased the image of God. We talked about that last week. We talked about that for the last month, in fact. It never erases the image of God. There is still something in women that invites, but now freedom to invite, that freedom to draw others in is replaced by fear. And so women now find themselves asking the question, am I special? At root, every woman and every little girl wonders if someone will find her beautiful. And I don't just mean physically. If someone will find her worth gazing upon, worth moving towards, worth treasuring, if someone will answer the invitation she is giving just by her own being. So maybe it would be easier if we see this in, uh, in Genesis 3. So flip over to Genesis 3, 16, again, the Bible's not going to go there. Uh, I think it'll be there. Maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. Okay, so Genesis 3, 16, I'll read it. Okay, so the first part of this, and you heard, you heard, uh, we've got to read it earlier. So the first part of this talks about the fact that there will be pain in childbearing. Okay? Now, that's a bit of a translational gloss. It's an easy one to make because give birth to okay, that's a reality. Okay, so, uh, but that's not exactly what it says. Literally, it says there will be, that this curse will be with your pain and your conception. It makes a lot of sense, right? Well, listen, scholars will tell you since normally there isn't pain associated with conception, okay, it's normally the opposite, uh, there's not pain associated with conception, that what's in view here is using conception as a figure, as a metaphor, in fact, as a as to use the technical term, a metonymy, a word that stands for the entire process of childbearing, which is the most fundamental of relationships. Right? And so what, what this is saying is that there will be pain through the entire process of the most fundamental of your relationships. And so if the curse for men we saw last week is vocational, the curse for women is relational. It's about relationship. Whereas before, before sin, life was found in drawing in of others into relationship. Now, even in the most fundamental relationship, there is pain. So when a woman asks, am I special? Often the answer, because of the sin of the world and in herself, is no. And so she tries to protect herself. And that's where objectification comes in. Objectification is a way to do that. It's a way to protect Instead of inviting others into her heart, a woman will, will take part of her and reveal that, offer that. Okay, for some of their body, their sexuality, they say, I will use my body to be special. 
others will engage just that. For others, it's their giftedness and their confidence. They, they say, I, I'm special because of what I can do. I can be successful. I can, I can keep these things well in order. For, for still others, it's their goodness. Right? I am special because I meet all of your expectations. Always. And so, in the midst of it, there's not, there's not relationship going on because the objectification at the end of the day is this. It's, you, you can have my body, but you will not have my heart, you will not have my soul. It's, you, will, you will have my confidence, but don't move past that. You will have my goodness, but don't see my brokenness. And see, the problem is, is, this doesn't tell the world about God at all. Objectification doesn't invite anyone. It does not entice. It doesn't establish relationships. It keeps people at bay. And you, you, so ladies, you keep people at arm's length, never let them get past your goodness, your confidence, and your physical you. You've given up on being a Jew. You're content with being used. And so you tell the world that you, unless the God of the universe, are not to be known, not to be enjoyed, you're just to be used. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not what you were created to be. You are not an object to be used. You are a glorious image of God of the Jew. And the gospel of Jesus, that God came in the flesh, Live the life that you and I couldn't, free of sin, die in your place for your sin, was raised that you might be new, frees you to, to courageously image the beauty of God. That question, am I special, is answered in Jesus with a resounding yes! He died to reconcile you to God and who sought you out when you hated him. And so opening yourself, your heart, drawing others towards you. That is risky. It will bring great pain. But the gospel frees you. It tells you it, will, it cannot destroy you. Because trusting in Christ, the worst that the world will deal out to us will not have the last word. How God has made you will draw others to you. It will draw others into a relationship where sin only divides. And just as the beauty of God draws us to Him in Jesus and restores relationship with others, so also a gospel-centered femininity will draw others into the heart of the woman for a relationship and not keep them there. So that's the image of beauty, but also there's the image of nurture. Because okay? you see, God doesn't just draw others into a relationship, which He does. But He also restores others and grows them in that relationship. He nurtures them. Flip back to Psalm 62, verses 5 and 8. David says this. Find rest on my soul, God alone. My hope, my hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. And then in verse 8, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. In the Psalms, okay, the Psalms, if you're not familiar, is the middle section of your Bible. If you were just flip over the Bible, no, you'd be in the Psalms. And it's a set of uh, poetry, songs, uh, some call it the, like a hymn book of, of ancient Israel. Uh, the two most common ways in which God is described in the psalm is one, as a deliverer, and two, as a refuge. God is a deliverer in that he moves out to see evil conquered, and he is a refuge. Okay, a refuge, as we see here in Psalm 62, is a safe place. In battle times, it's the place you go where the enemy can't get you. It's the place you go to, to kind of uh, be resupplied, to recuperate for the next battle. So what does this have to do with feminine? Well, in Proverbs 31, don't check out on me, okay? I get it. You're so tired of the P31 thing. 
I, I get it. Some of you just, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Others of you are just so tired of this. Just stay with me for a minute, okay? In verse 11 of Proverbs 31, yeah. Proverbs 31 is this uh, poem that a mama is writing to her son, basically saying, when you look for a wife, this is what you look for. So ladies, you have boys, this is the kind of thing you can be writing this to your son, going, look, pay attention. When you're looking for a wife, this is what you look for, okay? And in verse 11, it says this, her husband entrusts his heart to her, and she does him good all the days of her life. Now, I know there's all that other stuff about flats and small business ownership and all that stuff. This is the center of it. Okay? Her husband entrusts his heart to her, and she does him good all the days of her life. What this means is that the woman in Proverbs 31 is a refuge for her and also, that's not all. In Genesis 2, I told you we'd get back to this. When God says he needs to create a helper suitable for the man, that word means one other thing. Most of us think of a helper as like the one who does the meaningless tasks so that someone else can go do what's really important, right? Which is all part of our cultural narrative of this whole gender thing. Because when we think uh, gender and traditional and biblical, for some reason we get the cleavers in our mind, Right? As if Gordon June came out of like Second Corinthians, right? They didn't. Okay, the word helper does not mean the one who does all the meaningless stuff so the guy can go do what's important. The word helper, over and over in the Bible, is used in the one case here in regards to the woman, every other case in regards to God. God is the helper, and in those contexts, when it speaks of God, it doesn't talk about the fact that God's doing all the meaningless stuff, so we can get around the really important. Talking about the fact that God is a giver of life. A helper in this context is a life giver. Someone who makes things right. Women don't just draw others into relationship. Women were created to extend the rule of God through relationship. Guys extend the rule of God to bring order out of chaos. Women extend the rule of God through relationship. They are made to draw others in to nourish those people, to seek their flourishing through relationship. And so, putting these two things together, women open themselves to draw others in and to see them grow and to, see, to impart life to them. The problem is, like we saw before, sin has twisted this as well. And so, instead of nurture, after the fall, women are prone to control and consume. Okay, look back at Genesis 3.16. God says, uh, we heard from Rebecca read this. God says, your desire will be for your husband. Now, there's two aspects of that word desire. I'm going to deal with one here at this point and one in the next one. But there are, there are three places in the whole Bible in which this word is used. One is here, and the, the next one is in the very next chapter, in which it talks about the fact that sin is waiting to consume one of these kids. Thank you. God tells him, sin is looking to, it desires you. And the image of that is consuming. And so what, what is said here is, the image that God gives in Genesis 3.16 is that the woman will seek to consume her husband. And so instead of drawing, we'll take that one away, okay? But like instead of drawing others to nourish them, drawing others in to impart life, women will draw others in to get life from them. And what is more, because of the way in, in, that, in those two verses that uh, desire and uh, rule are set in parallel, it's clear that the other thing that's in view here is domination, that the woman will seek to control 
She will demand that others come through for her, that others fill her. The question is why, right? Look, the first step that Eve took towards sin was doubting the good part of her. The curse reflects the fact that women now don't have to begin doubting the good part of God. It's a, it's a fact in their lives, right? God can't satisfy them. God is withholding from them. I will get what I need. I will consume what I want. I will get what I need from others if I have to. So the reality is that the end of all of that attitude in women is loneliness. You know what I mean. She is made to create and nurture relationship to others, to, to draw others in and nurse them. Because of sin, she is nagged by this gaping emptiness that she knows does not belong. Something isn't right. And so to fill that, she consumes and controls. She, she controls because of the incessant fear that I'm not special. No one will help me. I have to take care of myself. And she consumes because she knows that that ache that she feels doesn't belong there. She's trying to get rid of it. Now, some of you in this room do this through the domineering control method, right? That's the kind of the typical masculator, like, I'm going to get there and enforce your will on others. Others of you aren't like that at all. You don't use that, you use subtle manipulation, right? The subtle manipulation of uh, the unspoken expectation that others need to make you feel that they're responsible for your emotional life. Others use their sexuality or their helplessness or their people pleasing. The common strain of us in all is others must deliver from me. And she will find a way to make it. But ladies, the gospel of Jesus frees you to tell us think about God. That God is the one in whom, uh, or who is our refuge. That he is the one who nourishes us from his very son. You see, in Jesus, we do see that God cares for us. That he comes to restore us to himself. And that he did so, not because you manipulated him into it. Not because you somehow convinced him and Jerry rigged the system. He did this while you hated him. And he frees you by telling you that that ache that you feel is in fact the fractured nature of your relationship with him. But that he also dealt with that fracture through the death and resurrection of Jesus and now calls you to trust in him and become that nourishing place for others. Because that is the life you were created. But listen more close. And this is one of the hard parts. Jesus is not your anti-lonely pill. I know that you can come to some churches and they're going to tell you that. Like, you come to Jesus and everything's going to go well with you. It's a lie. And, and I can stand up here very easily and say, yes, you feel lonely. And that's part of the fact that your broken relationship with God. And when Jesus comes in, you'll never feel lonely again. And I would be lying to your face. Part of that it will remain in the same way that futility still remains for men as they move out into the world. Like, they still have thorns and thistles. That ache will remain until Jesus comes back. But through Christ and the Spirit, not only will you have experiences of fullness, where that's not the case, but you will have, in the midst of the times where it is the case, the surety that it will be for you. So that's the image of beauty, the image of nurture. Last time I want to talk about this image of rest. Look back at Psalm 62 at the beginning. The psalm says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. We said about this. The, the theme of rest is strong in Scripture, right? Most of us know, okay, God worked on six days, He rested on the seventh. That's the first time you hear of it. Um, in, in 
the ladder towards Genesis 9, where we're talk, we hear about this guy named Noah, right? He's in the midst of this flood through who God is going to kind of hit the reset button on human history. Noah's name means the bringer of rest. Uh, when God sets apart his people from self, he commands them to be like him and have a day of rest. In fact, the, the Psalm 95 calls the land that God's people were promised God's rest. Rest is huge in Scripture. God is a God at rest. He is a God who looks back on his work, declares it good, and enjoys it. And it is poignant that the last thing made before God rested is one. Like I said last week, man was made outside of the garden and brought in, right? He's made in the wild place. The place that's untamed, the chaotic place, right? And we kind of reflect that, guys. And, and he's brought into the garden. Woman is made in the garden, a place of total provision. And so women are designed to draw others in by the beauty of who they are, to nourish others and to give life via relationship, and to provide rest. Now, what I don't mean is that they provide rest by taking over all the work so the rest of us get rest. That's foolishness. Some of you do that. Some of you guys are really hopeful that the ladies will do that for you. That is not what I mean, okay? What I mean is true rest. Refreshing. Enjoyment. Women image that aspect of God that is able to stop. Look back on what has been done. Call it good and enjoy. This is so important because God created humanity not to be his work. It's not like God said, you know what, I need, I need slave labor. I'll get my hands dirty a little bit. There, all right, now I have to lift a finger. He created humanity to be part, to join into his creative life, which we're going to talk about the next couple weeks when we talk about work. But he created us to join into his creative life. But part of the creative life of God, listen to me, part of the creative life of God is resting and enjoying what has been done. Part of the creative life of God, in other words, is celebration. It's celebration. But the problem is, like we've seen in the other two aspects, once again, it's twisted this. Because being able to rest is founded upon the belief that you are cared for. And that was questioned as soon as the serpent came around. Look back at Genesis 3.16. You turn again to that little word desire. A few minutes ago, I mentioned this word gives you a sense of consume, which it does. But its usage in Genesis 4 also gives the image of an animal that's constantly moving. You know what I'm talking about, right? Because you've been to the zoo. You watch, you go to the lion cage or the tiger cage. That's something you just, you just talk back and forth. He's like, you far from here, I have you some. Mm, I'm going to eat you. I'm going to get it. Like, and they're just constantly moving back and forth, thinking, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not resting because I'm, my eyes are on you. That, that, is, that is the image that is given to So not only has sin, Words and women, so they are striving to consume, but they also cannot stop moving. They image busyness, not rest. You know what I mean, okay? In every woman, there is something moving that needs to rest. For some, it's a busyness of relationship that constantly moves from person to person, never letting any one person actually get to know for some, it's a busyness of life, keeping people at bay with activity after activity. Some, it's, it's a busyness with drivenness. I will prove to you that I'm special because I will succeed where everyone else has failed. 
For others, it's a busyness to control your surroundings, hoping that it will keep, your, keep you safe. And for still others, and probably for some of you in this room, it's a busyness with spirituality, trying to control the most uncontrollable one of all, God. Trying to control him by your ceaseless devotion. The church today actually does a disservice Disturbance to all women by somehow putting on a pedestal the idea that a truly spiritual woman is the consummate servant who's so strung out because she's so busy doing everything in the church. You know, like she's she's looking around and her friends and say, Come to Jesus and be strung out like me. Yay! It's awful. Ladies, business is not what you were created to be. Rest on the see that you have been cared for. That there is someone who is confined to their life and who has proven it to you. Sister, just a minute, ladies. Here at Holy Cross, we know, many of you know, that we're big on, on community, that God saves, and saves for himself people, right? We have our groups, we have all that stuff, and that is great. Can I also tell you that a community is made up of individuals? Right? A community is made up of individuals. And that means. God cannot lose you in a crowd. Jesus died because you were worth dying for. You, not just us, but you. Stop hiding behind your business and rest in that. Listen, just because every event is not turned out like you demand that it does, does not mean that you are not loved. And please don't go claiming that nothing has been good. Okay? You know that's not true. Don't disregard a lot of good and conform to the narrative that is driving you insane. Okay. Jesus has moved towards him in love. He has given everything for your flourishing because you are made to flourish in a relationship with God. And that is exactly what the kingdom is for. So it's time to get off that busyness treadmill and enjoy that. And the reality is, I'm not just saying that for you, I'm saying that for me. Because when you do that, you invite others into that same thing. You are made to invite others into that kind of rest. I need that. Others need that. We all need that. Look, I've been speaking primarily to women this morning, but I want to speak specifically to the men and the boys in the room. So, guys, listen up. What we've been talking about is the way in which women uniquely image God. These are things that the world learns about God from women because of who they are. They learn those things about God from them, and they cannot learn them from us. Okay? What we have, what we have just seen, frankly, is that what they do is they are created to join with us in the spreading the rule of God across the world, but they do it differently than we do. Differently. They do it by drawing others in, by nourishing them, by giving them rest, and by, and by being enjoyed. Guys, we need this. And I don't just mean husbands with wives. I mean men as men need women as women. What they do is mysterious and beautiful, but it is also holy and powerful. And so for too long, we have said, and don't you dare advocate this, for too long, you're going to blame this on like a mainstream media. Quit it. For too long, you and I have, have declared that what is valuable in the world are those things that resonate with men. And so what we have done is we have, we have convinced women that if they're going to be valuable, they need to be 
they are not, instead of being joy for what they are. Wholly different than us. Beautiful and wonderful images of the God who made us. Stop being scared of them. You can value what they do without it taking away from the value of what you do. This is not a fixed topic. Delight in them. Delight in all of them. Guys, delight in the little girls who run around here in their pretty little dresses. And delight in your sisters who are opening themselves to a relationship, nourishing others through it, knowing that when they do, they will be hurt. Delight in that. Let me conclude by returning to women and girls. I know I've been speaking without a lot of specificity, okay? Some of this is because I'm a dude. And so I'm expecting you all to work with some of these principles out in community. Uh, but let me say one word, a word that is probably echoing through your head when you speak of these things, and that word is risk. Because imaging this aspect of God that invites and then waits is risky. Imaging that aspect of God that draws in sinners who never stop being sinners is risky. Imaging that aspect of God that rests when the chaos still remains is risky. And you cannot mitigate that risk. I know you want to try. There's no getting around But in the midst of that risk, ladies, you are not alone. Your God is there. The one whose image you bear, who assures you not only that you will not be destroyed by whatever harm will come, but who also tells you that you will be most truly yourself as you courageously tell the story as only you can. Father, I pray for all of us here today that you help us to receive your word of joy. I pray for my, my sisters, the women here in this room, that you would bless them, give them encouragement, and hold it, image into the world everything that you have made them. And I pray for the guys, myself included, that you would give us grace to delight in that, knowing that our worth, our value, our rightness is somebody in you. Not how we compare to others. Or would you form Holy Cross and replace it with a strong men and strong women finding their strength in you and then offering that to the world in the ways that you have uniquely made us to do so?